Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 1 to 10. Listen to what God is saying to the church. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood before them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And, returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? May the meditations of our hearts together on this beautiful Resurrection Sunday morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, centuries ago, one way the earliest Christians understood Easter is or was as one gigantic joke, a joke that God played on the devil. And what's funny about the joke, according to the earliest Christians, is that death and despair think they have the last word. But as the sun rose early on the first day of the week and the women came to the tomb, it turns out that life and love and hope actually win the day. And this amazing good news, this Easter message, was thought to be hilarious. And in fact, in the early Greek Orthodox Christian tradition, on the Monday after Easter, after all those services and prayers and Orthodox services go a lot longer than Presbyterian services, I promise you, after those, all that had happened on Sunday, on Monday, the priests and all the people came back into the sanctuary and sat around casually telling each other funny stories and jokes, trying to crack each other up to celebrate the victory of God over the devil at Easter, to celebrate the victorious power of God's love, which had gotten and has gotten the final laugh. Well, like probably many years ago, these days there are a lot of things that we can't laugh about or smile about. There's a lot to be sad at these days, and still Easter proclaims that life is not a tragedy. Easter is the celebration of the perseverance of life, not as a denial of reality or an escape from the way things really are or from suffering, but as a gift from God that we discover through the reality and the suffering of life. It takes Good Friday to get to Easter. 
And that good news that life persists and perseveres is a celebration worth having. And you know, anything worth having is something we discover after going through hard times. When a baby, after months of pregnancy and hours and hours of labor and years of dreams finally arrives, wow, there is nothing like it. When you have a friend who sticks with you even though they know you and know the mistakes you've made, wow, there's nothing like it. When you've worked so hard and so long that you honestly thought many times that you'd never get there, and then, wow, there you are. That's Easter. That's what Easter is supposed to feel like for us. Life through on the other side of reality, on the other side of hardship. Life playing the ultimate joke on fear. When I was in college uh, many, many years ago in Stanford University in California, there's a tradition there where uh, graduating seniors, after they take their final exam or turn in that very last paper, after all of that work, just walk out of the exam room or walk out of the professor's office kind of like a zombie and find one of the many, many Spanish-style fountains around campus with water, like, you know, waist-deep, and you just walk right in. Backpack, clothes, we were pretty nerdy, you know, calculator on our belts, right into the water, go completely under... And after all that work and all that time, you just sit there and float. Wow. Every June, you see it, these zombies walking around. You know they're graduating because they're just like going right into these fountains. It's the weirdest, funniest, most wonderful thing when you're one of the floaters in those fountains. And you can't help but smile because that's what Easter should feel like. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann used to say that at Easter we should all hear the laughing of the redeemed and the dancing of the liberated. And he said that even in the days of dour German Protestant orthodoxy, every Easter sermon should always begin with a joke. So not to be outdone by the Germans, I want to tell you about the preacher who decided one Easter that because all these new faces he was seeing on that one day of the year who probably wouldn't come back for a whole nother year needed to remember his message, he was going to use some visual aids. And so as he started to preach and talk about a series of sins from which the risen Christ of Easter must surely save us, as he mentioned each sin in his sermon, the preacher would take a jar and plop it down on the pulpit right in front of him. As he talked about the first sin, the destructiveness of alcohol, the preacher would drop a live worm while he preached right into this jar filled with whiskey. The second worm, as he talked about the dangers of smoking, first and secondhand smoke, he would drop into a jar filled with cigarette smoke. As he talked about the dangers of overeating and bad diet, which I hear about a lot at my house, he dropped a third live worm into a jar of chocolate syrup. And finally, the fourth jar, as he preached, he dropped, into, he dropped the worm right into the fourth jar filled with good soil. And at the end of this sermon, the preacher held up each jar in series to show his congregation the results, which are the first worm who tried to survive in a jar filled with whiskey Happy at first, but then dead. The second worm in the jar filled with cigarette smoke, initial respiratory problems, and oh, end result, 
deceased. The third worm, floating, dog paddling, treading syrup in the jar of chocolate syrup, dead. And finally, the fourth worm, as you kind of could already tell, who had avoided all these sins there in that good soil, alive and well. And with a smile, a satisfied smile on his face, the preacher demanded from the congregation, what brothers and sisters does our God want us to learn from this demonstration? And the little boy in a new family sitting about halfway back raised his hand and said, uh, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't get worms? <laughs> Sometimes, no matter how hard we try. Yes, today there is a lot to be sad about in this world. Russia hell-bent on prosecuting this war in Ukraine, civilians being killed, murdered, leaders at home and abroad so intent on getting their way they refuse to compromise for their greater good, gunfire on subways and in schools, racial injustice that does not seem to abate at all, no matter how much awareness is out there, all the craziness, all the anger, all the killings, Hope these days, we know, is hard to come by. And yet here we are telling jokes. According to Luke, the women who went to the tomb early on that first Easter morning weren't going there looking for any hope at all, and I get it. All their reliable sources of hope had dried up. They had failed. The women's hopes were gone at this point. Now they're just looking for a place to grieve, to be left alone with their despair. And I get that. You probably get that, especially after these couple of years. Sometimes I am so weighed down by the heaviness of the world, the news I read every day. Sometimes I'm so weighed down by the mistakes I've made, my part in all this brokenness, all this wrong. Sometimes it feels so heavy that nothing ever seems to get better day after day that I can hardly get myself moving in the morning. Luke tells us today that these grieving women were just doing what we all do when we're grieving, when we're that weighed down with sadness. They're just moving forward, getting done what needs to get done, bringing spices to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and some other women, all faithful followers, disciples, learners of Jesus, and all broken by sadness. And then something happens in Luke's story. The women get there early on Easter morning only to find that tomb empty. The giant stone that sealed the entrance rolled away somehow. And this perplexes them, the author tells us. But then two blazing, blazingly white-dressed guys show up and start telling the women that Jesus isn't where he's expected to be. Where He's never where we expect him to be, apparently. That he has risen from death. And now the women are afraid. And that is what happens, fear, when the laws of physics, all the standards and barometers that we normally rely on don't work anymore, don't apply in particular situations. When all the reliable laws of predictability all of a sudden don't really work and it's scary in life. Here's an example. Have you ever had just one key fob to your car because you can't find the other one? And then the one you have, which you're sure you put on the counter by the telephone, isn't there. I'm not saying this from personal experience. I'm just saying. 
But when it's the only one you have, and you know you put it there, and it's not there, and after you blame everybody in the house and they come up innocent, your world starts spinning. You start sweating. You start, I mean, it really gets crazy. You're so angry at yourself. Have you ever done or said everything you were supposed to do, and still the hiring committee or your boss or your girlfriend or your partner or the college you were trying to get into tells you you're not wanted? That's fear. When the rules don't apply anymore, no matter what you do, it just doesn't work out. You can't control things. These two strange men asked the women this morning, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking in all the predictable places, assuming all the usual rules? Why are you looking for fulfillment in things that always leave you feeling empty? Why do we do that? One of my favorite authors is Stephen King, and he wrote a book called Needful Things, which is about a new gift shop that opens up in a small New England town, and it's run by this seemingly kind older gentleman whose name is Leland Gaunt. It's a great Stephen King character name. And Leland Gaunt owns a shop whose allure is that for each of the people in the town, the shop's inventory includes an item that is the thing each person wants most in life. It's the thing they feel if they could just have, they would be happy forever. But none of the people in the town can afford that thing in the store that they covet most. So Leland Gaunt, the owner, suggests a trade. Each of the townspeople will do a favor for him, and in return, they all receive that most wanted item. All the person has to do, he tells each one at a time, is play a simple prank on another person in the town. But of course, as the pranks start happening and each person is made to feel small by someone else that they thought they knew, who who they thought was their friend, the residents start to turn on one another until the whole town is in chaos. And Leland Gaunt is smiling away because the shopkeeper turns out to be none other than the devil himself in this story who's traveled throughout the world and down through the centuries, selling junk to people who thought they were purchasing the one item that would make them eternally happy. But what they always fail to notice, or at least to take seriously, is the sign right above the door of Leland Gaunt's store, which says, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Here at PCUM, every Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, we have a little quote at the top of the bulletin, like you have this morning, which helps us focus on the theme of the day. This one's from the late Rachel Held Evans, a young woman who died sadly and tragically in her 30s just a few years ago from cancer. Really profound thinker and theologian and woman of faith. She once wrote about Easter morning, there are people singing words to hymns today that they're not sure they believe, and there are other people digging out dresses they barely remember today from the backs of their closets, and other people delaying their Easter brunch today because of church, and there are other people who are just showing up today. And sometimes, Rachel Held Evans said, just showing up with your burial spices in hand is all it takes to witness a miracle. These women today, they just show up. They hear the good news. They're perplexed. They're terrified. Then they follow the instructions of these two mysterious men, and they remember 
which is what we do as a people of faith every day of the year. They remember what they had experienced with Jesus before. They remember what he told them, and they remember that for him and for them and for us, the only way out of grief and hopelessness and chaos and sadness is through it. That's the Easter message. So the women, in the verses right after this passage in Luke, run back to the men, to the apostles, but the women's words, Luke says, seemed to the men an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. Well, that's because women weren't considered reliable witnesses back in the first century in Palestine. They weren't even allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law. The women didn't believe their eyes. The men didn't believe the women. Nobody's believing anybody. We all would rather rely on the usual sources that we do every day. Science, the idea that people get what they deserve, the notion that if you eat right and work hard, everything's going to turn out just fine for you and for your family, just like you planned it. It doesn't work that way. It never works that way. Reliable witnesses can give us a reasonable point of view. They can tell us to play percentages and to play it safe. But reliable witnesses don't help us with the mysteries of life. Birth and death, joy and sadness, the parts of life we can't control. That's resurrection's territory. The unreliable witnesses in this story, first, are the women. And that's always where you're going to find resurrection, on the margins, the people and the places and the situations where you don't expect to get the best guidance. You're always going to find resurrection with the less reliable, less valued, less, less honored people and voices and circumstances. We're going to find resurrection where the writer Esau Macaulay, the professor, says it's the, the gift of hope in the power of God, this unending reservoir of forgiveness and abundance of love. Who could believe such a thing? Esau Macaulay asked last year in a New York Times op-ed. Christians at their best, he says, are the fools who dare to believe in God's power to call dead things to life. That, he says, is the testimony of his black church. It's not that he says that we in the black church have the best music, though we do, and the best preaching, though we do. The testimony of the black church, he says, is that at times of deep crisis, we somehow become more than our collective ability. We discover a source of hope, and then we become a source of hope that does not originate in ourselves. Friends, that's Easter hope we've been given this morning. Easter joke today is that while it may still be dark outside, the shadows may still be gathering, the light is breaking through. It will persevere, and the darkness cannot, shall not, and will not overcome it. Amen. Amen.